The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to Episode 63 of The Pennsylvania Project. As you may know, here at The Pennsylvania Project, our vision is a better Pennsylvania. To achieve that vision, our mission is to boldly showcase the political, cultural, and environmental challenges facing contemporary Pennsylvania and to relentlessly pursue correct solutions. But more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem, such as fitting all our topics into the available time rather than vice versa, like we did last episode. But I digress. So we have a leftover episode planned for today, and like all episodes of the Pennsylvania Project, it's divided into three parts. You, them, and me. Part one is all about you, your questions, your opinions, your solutions, your whatevers. And rather than a call-in format, we utilize an email-in format. So if you have something to say, you can always drop us a line at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Today for the you part, we have our latest regular feature, Unscripted Cohorts, plus questions about my wife and black reparations, assuming you can fit it in this time, unlike last time. After the you part comes part two, the them part, where each episode we host a guest to help us showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. Today's guest is a mix of the cultural and some of the political. He's John Gallagher, chief of police in Narberth, one of the towns along the main line outside of Philly. After that comes the me portion of the Pennsylvania Project, where it'll be my turn, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. I'll be focusing on some particular issue that really sticks in my craw, pun intended. Today I'll be ranting about eminent domain, at least the parts that didn't fit into last week's rant. That is, as I said, it's a leftover episode. And throughout the show, as is our long-established custom, we typically feature a Pennsylvania Toastmaster to serve as narrator to read our live commercials. But since we've been living in such interesting times... We've been asked to minimize our in-studio presence, so again today we have no narrator. We did that so we can make room for the chief. We'd rather have him in the room here. But the good news is we typically have a second Toastmaster with us, according to another one of our ancient customs, to read and help respond to whatever comes into our mailbag and join in on discussions with our guest. It's a role that we call cohort, and she's sitting across me right now, ready to do double duty of cohort and narrator on this, her fourth appearance on the Pennsylvania Project, a member of the ETS Toastmasters in Princeton and a lady with a beautiful singing voice, Donna Herb. Welcome back, Donna. Well, thank you, Ken. It's great to be back. Oh, I'm telling you. And you, you drive a ways to get here, too. I do. I'm honored that you would come down here. And I'm sorry, I have no song for you to sing. Well, that's all right. I oh, you know. Maybe we could just do summertime or something like that. Except <laughs> people may be listening to this in the winter. I have to jump in there first before you, we get to your question because I heard that yesterday the Pennsylvania legislature passed H.R. 836. That is something ordering Governor Wolf to end all of his orders and reopen Pennsylvania. I was so thrilled to hear that because we had our big rally, what, 11 days ago, something like that? And a lot of people said, oh, it's not going to do any good. But I talked to a lot of Political figures, a lot of people in the media, they're like, you don't realize how much good that's going to do. So here it is, 11 days later, and what do they do? They pass this thing with an almost veto-proof majority to say reopen Pennsylvania. Are you taking credit for that, Ken? I'm going to take some some <laughs> of the credit for that. And I really got to give it to Andy Starr, our guest last week, because it was his idea to try to do something. 
I was just the special guest star MC. But it's, I'm really happy, really, really thrilled that we, we had some kind of an impact. I'm not going to talk about that. You can go listen to that. That was episode 62 where we talked about that at length. So let's move on. What do we got? You got a question for me today? Impromptu, something I have never heard before. And I hope it has nothing to do with our question of the day. You want my question to you? I would love to hear your question. Well, it's a little related. Okay, we'll see. If you don't like it, I'll give you a different one. You're so good to me. If you believe that protests are an effective tool for change Hmm. in realizing long-term results, explain why, including what methods, peaceful versus violent, have more impact. And if you don't think that protests are an effective tool, explain why not. Interesting. Well, I guess I, I stole a little bit of your thunder there by saying that I, I'm taking a little bit of the credit for this. But, you know, it's funny because I was at the Reopen Pennsylvania rally for the first one in April, April 20th. And when we were walking, there were about two, 3,000 people there. And it was big. And virtually nobody was distancing. Nobody had masks or anything like that. And as we were walking away, my wife asked me, she said, do you think it'll do any good? And I paused a couple of seconds and I said, no, no, I don't think so. I'm, I'm being jaded about this, but I don't think it's going to do any good because they don't, they don't listen to us anyway. But I, I've had to backtrack off of that because that came up a couple episodes ago again because, as I mentioned, a lot of people think that it, it does make a difference. They, there's a saying in politics. They say for, for every phone call you get, there are 10 other people who think that. For every letter that you get, there are 100 people who think that. For every personal visit you get, there are 1,000 people who think that. And these protests, I, gotta, I would say, are probably one step beyond what about the method? I was about to get to that. So I, I think I got it covered. Yes, the rallies do that. And they're a lot of fun. We had a grand time at the, our big shutdown, the shutdown rally. And way back when I was back there in seminary school, not seminary school, college, high school, this is in the late 60s, early 70s, we'd march against the war. It was a great way to meet girls. <laughs> I'm telling you. Great thing to do on a date. All the way up until Kent State, and after they started shooting, the girls started saying, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna get shot, stuff like that. Anyway, so that's part one. Yes, they're effective, and they're fun, and they're a great way to meet women, or guys, depending on what you're out to meet. But whether it's peaceful or violent, well, that depends on what your goals are. It always comes down to what problem are you solving? And more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. So I think that a, Generally speaking, a violent protest is not solving the problem correctly. So what problem is it that you want to solve? Could be. You may want to start armed insurrection. Didn't Timothy McVeigh say that? Ooh, I'm stepping outside of Pennsylvania. My apologies. But he wanted to start armed insurrection. Didn't work. But if that's your goal, then, yeah, I would say, you know, go for the violence. The Antifa people who are in Philadelphia wearing black outfits and carrying hammers and smashing things. You know, it's bad. It hurts your goal. Like us, with our shutdown the shutdown rally, our goal is to be as nice as possible to people so that our message would get through. And obviously it worked, or at least it didn't hurt. So I would say peaceful, if you want your message to get through, unless your message is violence. And yes, they absolutely do, do make a big, big difference. That was a very thoughtful question. 
I thought it was appropriate for yeah. the upcoming topic. I know. You know, and somebody should have read it to uh, State Representative Rab, his supporters. They had a counter-protest. You mentioned that before. And that's, that's out there. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> and they were loud, and they were rowdy, and they were rude, and they were yelling, shut up, go away. I mean. And you had quite the opposition at that one rally, from that, what I yep. recall. Hey, I'm a Toastmaster. I can handle this. You did beautifully. Thank you very much. Coming from you, that's high praise because you're an accomplished Toastmaster yourself. All right, let's get on to the next question then, unless you have follow-up. No, that's mm -hmm. fine. Would you like your next question? This one comes from Bernie McCann. One of our regulars. Somebody you know well. And he is from Elwood City, Pennsylvania. And Bernie says... I was wondering if you would be comfortable with a question about reparations for the black community. Candace Owens, a well-known conservative from Philadelphia, thinks the Democrats are offering handouts to blacks. But I feel that just as surely as the government shut down businesses during this pandemic, they shut down economic opportunities for blacks through years of racism. Shouldn't the government now be required to reimburse the black community just as they do for business owners? Hmm. And do you want oh yeah. oh by the way Bernie also yes. said I didn't know I, if you wanted to answer that question and I was Yeah because I'm going to deal with his, his part at the same two time. First. Okay so Bernie yeah. also said by the way I like how you brought your wife Roberta on the show. She has an excellent radio voice. She really does. But what happened to her upstate New York accent? <laughs> I miss that. I bet. Bernie, I blame our radio producer, Brett, for making her voice sound so good. Brett rocks. He's sitting there nodding. He says, yeah, he knows. <laughs> hey, look what he does for my voice. Yeah, i got a great radio voice. Just call me Barry White. I don't know. But, you know, when I first got involved in politics, my dad asked me if there's anything I could do about my voice. It's before I was a Toastmaster. I says, yeah, Dad, let me get other parents or something like that. As for Roberta losing her upstate accent, that comes from 43 years of immersion in Philadelphia dialect. But you should hear when she gets back up with her family up in upstate New York. That accent instantly comes roaring back. It's pretty cool. She so starts saying things like, do a cannonball, Barry, instead of do a cannonball, Barry. And you should hear her say cow. I'm not even like, cow. She has a funny way of saying cow. Our kids make fun of her for it. I don't even try it. Anyway, so that's how she lost it, Bernie. But if you want to hear her come back, then you ought to visit her upstate sometime. But as for the reparations issue, there, there are several implied angles to that that aren't getting mentioned. Number one is about who should pay those reparations. I mean, should I pay? Someone who's shut down opportunities for blacks for the last 200 years would have to be a lot older than I am, don't you think, Bernie? So reparations they're asking for, they aren't targeting the actual perpetrators or obviously the specific victims. And isn't that the very core of the problems right now in the Middle East? One group wanting to even with another group for something that was committed centuries ago? I shouldn't mention that's not Pennsylvania. I should leave that out. What about things that people should be compensated for? Good luck with that. You know, you make a list. Doesn't everybody have a list of their own grievances against the government that they would want to be compensated for? Just look what's going on with this pandemic. We've had people suing the governor. 
And look at me. I've got a good one. I had to get over 10 times as many signatures to get my name on the ballot for governor as Ed Reddendell did back in 2002. Even though Article 1, Section 5 of the Pennsylvania Constitution says all elections shall be free and equal. Yeah, equal, sure. Free? No, that's the problem there. I had to pay professional signature gatherers to collect over what they collect. Tens of thousands of signatures for me. I paid over $30,000 to collect those signatures. Should I be compensated for that? It's a violation of the Constitution. After all, the government tried to shut down my political opportunity. I need reparations. Well, I guess it's half tongue-in-cheek. I wouldn't ask for it. But my point is everybody has their beef against the government. Something that they need to get repatriated for, reparationed. Reparated for, I don't even know what the verb is. And then there's the question, where does this money come from? Right? They steal it. That's where they get it. They steal it with that legalized theft that they call taxation. Inherently inefficient theft, I have to add, because you're lucky if you get a dime on the dollar back from every dollar you send to Washington. So that means the last person you should ask for any sort of reparations is the government. Because the irony of the whole thing is, is they're stealing from the very people who are going to be compensated. Go figure. The problem is, most of that money that goes through starts out as the theft of taxation and eventually would, would reach some reparated person. Most of that money sticks to the fingers of the bureaucrats, like 90% of it. I've seen numbers as high as 95%, some in the 80%, call it 90%. Nine, 90 cents out of every dollar sticks to the bureaucrats' fingers as they pass it along. In other words, it's the bureaucrats who are getting reparated for all this. They're stealing over 90% of what they stole from us. Now, Bernie, I can understand you want to do something. So let me remind you of our motto here at the Pennsylvania Project. More important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. As if money could solve this problem, I don't think so. Bernie, if you feel that somebody needs some kind of a reparation, why not take it upon yourself personally to make it happen? You've heard me say the mantra of the grassroots activist a million times on this show. Well, here comes a million and one. It's easy to remember, 10 words each. 10 words, two letters each. Bernie, just tell yourself, if it is to be, it is up to me. Go ahead, say it. Stop passing off responsibility for your ideas onto the pocketbooks of others and lining the pockets of bureaucrats. If it is to be, Bernie, it is up to... I'll let you fill in the blank on that. What do you think, Donna? Am I being too rough on Bernie? I don't think so. No, he deserves it. No. No. No, Bernie's a nice guy. He is. You just were answering the question, it in is. your opinion. It is. That's what it always comes down to. Well, you know, on that note of personal responsibility, that's going to have to do it for the you portion of episode 63. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, we'll be meeting with today's guest, Narberth Police Chief John Gallagher. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by 
bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Here's an interesting question. What do you think of these three ideas? Number one, people have, at all times, an inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government as they think proper. Number two, juries shall have the right to determine the law as well as the facts. Number three, the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. Do those words sound like they're something taken from a Hollywood political thriller? They're not. They're all direct quotes from Article 1 of the Pennsylvania Constitution. Everyone's heard of the United States Constitution, but have you ever heard of the Pennsylvania Constitution? Have you ever read it? But most importantly, was it ever taught to you in school? If you're like virtually all Pennsylvanians, the answers are likely to be no, no, and no. Well, it's long past time we changed those answers to yes, yes, and yes. And have you, and you have a crucial part to play in making that come to pass. As you know, we here at the Pennsylvania Project are all about solutions. So we've authored a petition demanding that the Pennsylvania Constitution be taught to our children. If you believe it's important that our children know how our state government works, head over to our website, PennsylvaniaProject.com, and add your name to the growing list of signers. And every time we accumulate another batch of signatures, we'll send a copy of the petition to the governor, the Pennsylvania Board of Education, and each and every one of the 501 school districts in Pennsylvania, asking them right now to start teaching our children the Pennsylvania Constitution. So please, sign the petition at PennsylvaniaProject.com. The alternative is yet another generation that has never heard of, let alone read, the Pennsylvania Constitution. And people wonder why no one votes anymore. Too true. Thank you, Donna. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome to the Them portion of Episode 63 of the Pennsylvania Project, where we host a guest to help showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues I can talk facing Pennsylvania. Today's guest is cultural with an overtone of political. He's Narborough Police Chief John Gallagher, 25-year veteran of the Philadelphia Police Force as well. We met him at one of our Shut Down the Shutdown rallies held a few weeks ago. One of the nine police departments we dealt with dealt with that day for the rallies. Chief Gallagher and his Narberth officers, in my opinion, in the universal opinion of the ralliers, were the best that day. Well done and welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Chief. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, man. Not, not as much as appreciated the great job you did for us at the rally. 
some of the stuff that you had lined up because we were we were the rally is being held on Montgomery Avenue and for people who don't know that's kind of like the main road through there it's four lane what's a 35 40 mile an hour road sure yeah, well it uh, unfortunately people travel too fast on that road I it's limited know. much lower than that yeah. and it's controlled by Lower Marion Township but uh, but there's been a lot of auto accidents on Montgomery Avenue mm-hmm. and you were ready to shut down the road we were certainly ready to shut down the eastbound <laughs> side to accommodate you and the others who were going to come to the, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the event. Uh, we remain apolitical as much as we possibly can, uh, you know, in, in, in effect, uh, all times. The one thing I think that's been a little bit of a problem with law enforcement is law enforcement has gotten too politicized uh, over years. And oh, I agree. Police, police departments are always supposed to remain apolitical at all costs. We serve everybody. Everybody deserves quality police service, regardless of what your background is, your interest are, your political affiliation, race, creed, color. Everybody deserves quality police service. We are there to make sure that that public safety mandate is met under any circumstances. Uh, and uh, we in the Norbert Police Department take that very seriously. So, considering it, what happened that yeah. day, uh, I know, know we have to uh, we have to put action plans in place. We have orders in place where we act, basically list all the things that we have to do to make sure that the event is safe, and that includes personnel, timing, what we're there for, a purpose, any supporting agencies. These are the mm-hmm. things that we put in place. The local communications to yeah. County Radio in Montgomery County as well as uh, Lower Marion Communications, SEPTA, in case we have to <laughs> know that. Uh, we have to uh, reroute buses. Uh-huh. Um, you know, those are all, there's a whole host of things that have to be done uh, in police preparedness. And, and you, even, uh, you even set up special parking for us if we turned out that we had a really large crowd. We did. We did. And we want to make sure that we, we accommodate people as much as we possibly can, not only because, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, but also to to really help control crowds if they're going to come to that location because we want to make sure that they're safe. The other thing we have to do is we have to make sure that we safeguard uh, everybody's uh, you know, right to free speech, their First Amendment rights. And uh, again, we take, a, uh, we take a neutral stance. We take a, mm-hmm. a political stance to make sure that everybody's heard. And we have a great community. Norbert is a great community, a uh, wonderful town. Uh, our officers, I couldn't be proud of, prouder of them. They do a great job. Um, they have I great agree. experience, great people. Uh, who do great things on a day-to-day basis, not just that day, but any given day. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, we work in unison with Lower Marion Township, but these officers that I have in, in the Norbert Police Department, uh, in my opinion, are absolutely second to none. Uh-huh. Now, you mentioned about... Oh, yeah, I was actually going to ask, John, um, do you get a lot of rallies in your area, such as what Ken had participated in? No, you know, we, we don't really get that many rallies, the things that, uh, that you were participating in back on uh, May the 30th. Um, you know, but however, we do have a lot of special events in the borough. And uh, you, Norbert is a very unique town, and it's a great place to be. It's kind of like I refer to it as a postcard in the winter because it looks like, a, it looks <laughs> like it's, it's off of a, uh, you know, uh, a Dickens you know, event. Mm. And with that in mind, we have the Dickens Festival every year in Narberth. Uh-huh. And we have the July 4th celebration. We have music and arts festivals that occur a couple times a year. We have scavenger hunts. We have Halloween parades. So we have multiple events that we plan for. We have the Memorial Day Parade, which unfortunately this year got canceled because of the virus. Um, but uh, we have multiple events that we do every year in the borough. And it's just a great community where everybody comes together. Uh, but in, 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 in those events, the police department leads the way. And we try to make sure that everybody's safe and secure. So I bring in uh, my experience from the Philadelphia Police Department. I worked in Homeland Security, detectives, patrol, 
uh, special operations, special units, and uh, we try to bring uh, that flavor of that uh, that added level of safety to all these events. Uh, the one thing I found when I first went to the borough was some of these events, uh, unfortunately, um, they weren't really prepared for acts of terrorism. Um, you know, they weren't using their vehicles to their advantage to block off streets and to make sure that everybody who was participating in the events was safe. Um, so we put that as part of these plans where we were going well, to deploy these resources to make sure that we could prevent, protect against vehicle-borne attacks, uh, improvised explosive devices. One of the things also that we did is they weren't necessarily networking with other law enforcement agencies. Like, for instance, I know from working in counterterrorism, we have a great unique partnership with uh, the SEPTA Police Department. And because we have the R5 platform, the regional line in the R- in Narberth, we were able to get SEPTA police officers for special events, including canine, to come and help us, uh, bomb dogs, to help us look at receptacles and help us prepare. Uh-huh. Um, you know, And these are some of the things that we do well, for every event. We weren't even thinking about any kind of a terrorist attack or mm-hmm. something like that. We were more concerned with getting a chance to talk to these, these representatives. Sure. It's... So it's, it's such a shame that we have to actually think about that these days, that, you know, you have to go through all of that. And well, I think yeah. the extra budget that's required just to go through all those extra steps, but it's great that you have the ability to get additional help, like from SEPTA and so on. Sure. And we do that with financial responsibility as well, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Chief Tom Estelle from the SEPTA Police Department, he has been a true partner to Narberth mm-hmm. and to me in particular. Uh, and we have really been able to maintain that force multiplier for special events. It's been incredible. Uh-huh. And people have remarked about that. And uh, it helps us control costs when we join into those partnerships and networks. That. That's what I was uh, and uh, we come together. And policing is a family. There is no question about that, regardless oh, yeah. of what the circumstances are. So we are all a family, and we come together in times of need. And uh, we have real partnerships out there. For instance, um, we recently had some assistance from the Amtrak Police Department um, for another little event. So these are the type of uh, relationships that we have to form mm-hmm. and we have to foster and promote and cultivate. Yeah. If you don't do that, you're really not a leader in policing. Um, I you know, agree. and that's and, uh, and that's one of the that's one of the part key things to police leadership is partnership and really helping even in a bigger picture, broaden out our opportunities for professional development in terms of training. Because That's these organizations got, that we partner with, sure, are, 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 are helping us with training and advancement. That's right, cross-training, because you see how other organizations act and stuff. Sure. Because I, I, I saw that when I went through the Abington Citizens Police Academy, and sure. I've, I've worked with them since then. I've done DUI checkpoints. And we have the five surrounding boroughs and townships all get together. So we've got officers you know, from five different departments and i could see us hook i see how we hook together and that that whole family thing yeah you're right we all love our donuts sure but i'm so <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad uh, john that you mentioned training because i think one of the big things that is needed these days especially with all of the to do that's going on you know recently is more training training in such a way that Anytime anybody gets into a circumstance where there is, especially when we were talking about protests earlier, where they might get a little bit violent or something, mm-hmm. it's or or any time that you are, you know, kind of going toward a, a situation where there's adversity, as human beings, our adrenaline starts pumping. We start getting into a fight or flight <laughs> kind of, you know, activity of our of our our bodies, and so uh-huh. I think that. I, from what I understand, that there can be some training that can assist officers or anyone, well, for that matter, training under fire to be able to do that 
I'm, I'm thinking of one of our ralliers. I mentioned him last week, 16-year-old kid. He's out there rallying with us. With that first location where there was a counter demonstration and they're yelling in our faces and stuff like that, he said, my knees were shaking. I was terrified. <laughs> but when the second was there, now he's ready for it. So that's trial by fire, I right. guess. And just and having some mechanisms prepared and in place to be able to address it like, oh, recognizing that mm-hmm. A, that that trigger occurred, uh-huh. and then B, saying, ah, oh, I have something in my back pocket, whether it's just to take a, <laughs> a breath or whatever. Now, sometimes, I'm sure, in policing, you don't have a chance to do that deep breath mm-hmm. because the situation calls for an immediate response. But mm-hmm. the training, I think, is like really important for these well, things. Police officers are, ma- are paid to make split-second decisions. And That's right. the one thing I can add is, out of any of the professions that you can think of in this nation, Policing are the, police officers are the most trained. Uh, the level of training that we go through each year yep. that's required by the Municipal Police Officers Education and Training Commission for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, in, in addition to other opportunities and our partnerships, uh, is unprecedented uh, mm-hmm. in terms of use of force, tactics, uh, firearms training, legal updates, patrol practices, mm-hmm. uh, emergency vehicle operations, rapid deployment, active shooter trainings. There are so many trainings, investigative social media tracking. There are so many different things, so many opportunities out there in so many ways. For instance, I'll give you an example. All of our officers are, are, um, are trained in um, uh, critical incident stress management, stre- uh, crisis intervention for mental health. Hmm. Is, is it something where, do you think, just a, one last tip on the training part? Or Go for it. I understand that your department sounds like it's very well trained. I'm, I'm just wondering if there is an inequity across the nation that some areas can afford to do more training than others. As, that, as much as the training is needed, I'm wondering about that. Well, there's you know, there's, you know, there's state standards uh, in, in every state and commonwealth for uh, policing across the nation. Um, so I would still have to default to say that the policing as a profession, by and large, uh, is uh, regardless of your jurisdiction, is, is going to be a well-trained organization. Now, there are some organizations uh-huh. probably in the commonwealth of Pennsylvania that are behind a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but it depends on resources, budget, things That's that are available. That's true. Exactly. I, I can tell you, Narberth ain't one of them. Abington's not one of them, too, because from what I saw when I was going through the academy there. Yeah. I'm your caster, Ken Krawchuk, and you're listening to episode 63 of the Pennsylvania Project. We'll be right back after this information with more from our guest, Narberth Police Chief John Gallagher. Cast Your Cares is a family-run nonprofit in Kensington, serving hundreds of meals to the homeless and needy every Saturday. The community has come to appreciate and rely on the efforts of this great organization. Although Cast Your Cares is supported by many churches and organizations throughout the Philadelphia area, more help is needed. In these times of challenge and uncertainty, please consider offering a helping hand. More information is available from their website at castyourcares.org. That's castyourcares.org. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, caster for the Pennsylvania Project. You know, it's easy to find a high-paying job. At least for some people it is. Employers are begging for competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. But do those words describe you? Competent leader communicates effectively? If not, or even if they do, 
you may want to consider joining Toastmasters. The mission of Toastmasters is to provide a supportive environment for learning communication and leadership skills. But does it really work? Hey, look at me. I joined Toastmasters and now I have my own radio show. So turn your life around like I have. Visit Toastmasters.org and contact a club near you. Visitors are always welcome. And be sure to mention my name, Ken Krawchuk from the Pennsylvania Project. The future is anxiously awaiting competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. You can be that leader. It all starts at Toastmasters.org. Are you a small business owner looking for referrals? Do you have a streamlined approach to generating new referrals? Contact Stephen Worley to learn the fast, easy way to generate new referrals. Stephen has an all-inclusive system that will help you generate an extra 5 to 10 customers per week without spending a single dollar on ads. You won't have to create a website, have pictures taken, or write a single ad. Stephen will take the headache out of the process. Contact him at stephenworley.com. That's Stephen with a V, W-E-R-L-E-Y dot com. Governor Tom Wolf has been picking winners and losers by allowing corporations like Walmart to stay open, yet forcing small businesses to close. Now he's doing the same in politics. Wolf's Republican and Democratic buddies will appear on your ballot this November, but by executive order, he has excluded independents and third parties. The Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania doesn't think this is right. That's why we're suing Governor Wolf in federal court. Please, help us in our legal battle against those who would limit your choices in the voting booth. Visit our website, lppa.org, and click Donate. The Libertarian Party the only political party that stands up for all of your freedoms, all of the time. LPPA.org Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and we are back with episode 63 of the Pennsylvania Project and our guest du jour, Narberth Police Chief John Gallagher. John, we covered a lot of ground before before the break. There's a couple things I wanted to get to, though. And I guess given the sure. protests that are going on all around the nation, uh, I want to talk about use of deadly force mm-hmm. by the police. Now, I know we've talked about it three times, three episodes, quite extensively here. Episodes 8, 44, and 46. And one thing that we did is looked at the actual Title 18, Section 508, which lays out when a police officer is allowed to use deadly force. And I've got the quote here from it, and I'm just gonna pull out the one part. A police officer is justified in using deadly force when he believes certain two or three things, but the last one says, when such force is necessary to make the arrest. So that means only if you're making an arrest, you're allowed to use deadly force. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples back then in East Pittsburgh, I guess this is almost a year ago now, uh, there was, Officer did a stop, and 17-year-old jumped out of the back seat and was running away. And officer was in the process. He was going to make an arrest, but he, he shot the kid in the back. And he was justified in using that deadly force according, according to the law. 
One suggestion that, that we made here was to change that. Change that text to say, instead of such force is necessary to make the arrest, change that to be necessary to immediately protect lives. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you're not speaking for, the, for Narberth or the police force there, you're just speaking for yourself. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think about that use of deadly force to make an arrest versus to save lives? Well, when I think about the use of force to make an arrest, it would have to be in, in, in connection with a forcible felony. Um, you know, that would, uh, where a forcible felony was perpetrated and you have probable cause to make an arrest. The one thing I can say about use of force, and every police officer should always take this into consideration through their training, through their experience, and their personal application on the job, um, is that uh, use of force is an absolute last resort mm-hmm. under any circumstances. Um, you, if uh, under those circumstances, if there's an, a solvability factor, I don't want to second guess an officer that may have to make a split to sec, split second decision uh, as to why he or she did what they did. Uh, I wasn't there. I wasn't a fly on the wall. Right. However, at the same time, if there's other factors at play, you know, solvability factors, license plates, descri- unique descriptions of an offender or a vehicle, those things can lend to an arrest after the fact of that initial incident. Um, but uh, however, a police officer has the right to defend himself or help herself if they fear the, of serious bodily injury from the offender uh, or they fear for serious bodily injury to someone that they are trying to protect. Uh-huh. Um, so these are factors. Listen, you know, it is, you know, policing is an art and a science. Uh, there is no doubt about that. You know, personal detachment will clarify a professional train of thought. Um, that's why it's so important that you train and retrain and repeat and rinse because the simple fact of the matter is as much as you train and your experience in your application, there still may be things that are going to come up that are going to be unforeseen, unpredictable. Of um, so use of force is a very, very hard situation. I think that uh, uh, the officers, for the most part, the one thing I, I really would like to stress is there's a, a false narrative that I think is being perpetrated across the country uh, that police officers are actively going out there uh, trying to look, uh, to shoot, look, to hurt, look mm-hmm. to to take someone's life. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, police officers are ethical, they're moral, they're family people. Uh, just give you an example. They just want to go to work and do their job and go home just like everybody else. Unfortunately for the police officer, that's not always the case. He or she, at the end of the day, may not be able to make that trip back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the simple fact of the matter. Now, it's a profession that we've chosen. Um, you know, you choose that, you understand that, you accept the risks, you accept that all comes with the, uh, everything that comes with the job, and the responsibilities and the pressures can, in fact, be immense, immense. I, I believe yeah, it. I um, so, um, with that in mind, as we as we start to flesh this out and unpack this, um, use of force is a very, very hard thing to just compartmentalize and silo in one area. Um, you know, there are policies and procedures that you must follow. But there is always the outlier case that happens where you have to look at things on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to always take into consideration how would I want my family members treated if they were That's having right. interaction <laughs> with police. Um, those are important factors. Those are, are basically the ways to take the temperature in the room. Yeah, I can't imagine personally being a, a, a police officer. Like you said, the pressures are just tremendous. Well, you know, when I, I went through the police academy and I went out and I was not a full officer. I was an auxiliary. Sure. And even that, I mean, after my first night on the job, I just went home and I told my wife, I am not cut out to be a cop. Sure. Mm-mm. Exactly what I said. It's a difficult job. It's a difficult job. It is. It's a difficult it absolutely job. is. And you're making those decisions and it's difficult to make. Sometimes, you know, 
Monday morning quarterbacking, like you say, you're gonna look at it and say, oh, you should have done this, should have done sure. that, or something like that. But that brings up a question that we talked about at length in our episode 46. I laid out what I call the 10, ten cop commandments, something that would help improve the relationship between police and the, the people that they protect. And one of them, I'm gonna just jump to, I got, well, some of them, I mean, these are just no-brainers. You just mentioned one. Number one, a cop must always be civil as if he were talking to his dad. Right? And you just echoed that a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Cop must conduct himself as if no one is guilty. Never sweat the small stuff. Stay on point and never fish. Uh, personal choices are not a crime. Initiation of force is. And that's what you just said about these violent felonies. What did you call them? Some kind of? Forcible felonies. Forcible felonies, right. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Then there are a few others that go beyond that, but there's one that I want to talk about. I don't want to go, you can listen to episode 46 if you want to hear all six. But it's about the second guessing. When there is some kind of, something happens, something terrible happens. The first body, investigative body, is some internal affairs unit. And I don't know, from my point of view, that, that reeks of the fox guarding the hen house. Mm-hmm. Why, why do, do we have internal affairs as the first line of investigation? Well, you know, internal affairs is there to police the police. That's what they do. And when they investigate incidents, use of force in particular, uh, if warranted, what they do is if there's a uh, criminal action, they make the appropriate referral to the local district attorney's office for review and for for forward movement to prosecution if need be, Mm -hmm. uh, indictment, arrest, what would have you. But I I think, you know, the one thing you need to take into consideration is internal affairs uh, is needed in every police department uh there's got to be you know major police department there's got to be that oversight there's got to be if not uh, then you know you're not going to have anybody policing mm-hmm. the police now i'm a firm believer uh that we should always have a dialogue an open dialogue with the community there's always yep. options and alternatives that we can talk about but you know people think that internal affairs are going to protect bad cops there's nothing further from the truth well, internal affairs right. wants to get rid of bad cops just as, as much right. as any good cop that's right yeah. but it, it seems to go the other way because going back to title 18 section 508 you're justified in using deadly force to affect the arrest so in you know, i guess we've been on the show now running the show for well over a year and sure. when these things go by we, we remark on them and i always make a prediction about what's going to happen and in every case i'm saying they're going to be exonerated because they are following article title 18 section 508 so it just seems uh, you're right. We, there should be an internal affairs. The question is, should they be the first? And I, I actually have a question. I mean, internal affairs, are they trained police officers who then go into that as a specialty? Yes. So they are very well aware of what all of those laws are. It's kind of like before a judge was a judge, they were a lawyer, so they understand sure. the law. <laughs> and then It's terrible. You don't actually said that. <laughs> it, it says, when I'm, I have my notes I'm here, why do we let... The police fox guard the police hen house. It's as bad as letting lawyers be judges. That's a that's a quote from me. But you've got to know the law. You've got to understand what it is. Just like you know, the police policies and so on. You know, if a juror can can go in cold and make a yes no decision, I would think that anybody who's explained those rules could make a yes no decision. Well, you know, Donnie, you bring up a great point. Um, you know, when it comes to internal affairs, let's look at the Philadelphia Police Department as an example. You have. All sorts of ranks in the Philadelphia Police Department that join internal affairs to professionalize standards and because they believe in that mission, uh, whether they're officers, detectives, lieutenants, captains, inspectors, chief inspectors, they go into internal affairs and they're committed to the mission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
John, I'm looking at the clock. We're running <laughs> short on time. Sure. It's always too much fun. There's always a lot more that we want to talk about. But uh, we still got a little bit of time left. I just want to throw the mic open to, for you. If you want to throw anything out there, anything at all. It doesn't have to be about policing. It could be about community. It could be about puppy mills. It could be about anything. John, what's on your mind? Well, I, I can tell you one of the things, Ken, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. One of the things that's on my mind, really, quite frank, is the demonization of law enforcement that's happening right now across the nation. Uh, it's very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the law, police officers are citizens just like anybody else, and they deserve humanity and, and respect and uh, and consideration. They have families that they're worried about uh, right. right now. And my, you know, as a police chief, one of the things I see right now is a, politiza- a politicaliza- politicization of, of uh, you know, of, of law enforcement. It's just getting overly entwined in politics and i really like like to be like taking a knee oh i'm sorry what was that like getting down on one knee and you know actually to mention that uh one of the things i think in leadership is that you are supposed to remain neutral you are supposed to remain you know um uh, you know back from that um Mm -hmm. you know that's that's not leadership you know you cannot choose a side you're not there to choose a side. You're there to protect everybody. Mm-hmm. You know that gives it the it gives a bad perception. It's a bad indication, at least in my opinion, professionally. Also, too, it puts officers at a tactical disadvantage. I saw one police chief um, from Massachusetts over the weekend laying down in front of the uh, crowd, and, um, and I, I just no, adamantly yeah. disagree with that. What uh, if he had to react quickly? Yeah. What if your terrorist was suddenly on the scene? Listen, the ground Ken is the great equalizer, and when you're on the ground, somebody has a shot at your weapon just as much as you do now and that's the problem and what happens if that person gets your weapon and it kills someone indiscriminately fires into the crowd those are the things that are worry so if you want to be a police officer you have to follow your oath you have to remain neutral and you have to make sure that you ensure everybody's public safety the minute you start to fly a flag for one side or the other regardless of what the political affiliation of the movement is mm-hmm. you're no longer a police officer you can show empathy there's a time and a place like for instance some of the things we're seeing right now across the country what about town halls? What about meetings? Those things. Express those considerations then, but not at that point, because you have to be on your game. You Amen. are paid to do your job. Amen. Do your job. And you did a great job in Narberth when we were visiting you guys the other day. I'll say it again, man. All the all the police forces were excellent, but you guys. I mean, you were far far above the rest. Well, thanks, Ken. I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the recognition for the for the uh, police department in Arbor Barrow and uh, and my officers in particular because uh, I couldn't be prouder and I love working next to them every day. All right. You're a great well, spokesperson for them because you've made me want to come and visit. It's a beautiful I definitely want to come see town. it. No, I do. It's unique. The way it's laid across the train tracks and the south side, the north side and downtown Norworth. When you get a chance, make Sounds sure you gorgeous. go there because mm-hmm. you'll want to come back. I, I'm <laughs> definitely putting it on my to-do All list. Right. That's going to have to wrap it up to the then portion of episode 63 of the Pennsylvania Project. My thanks again to our today's guest, Narberth Police Chief John Gallagher. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, I will be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw, eminent domain. The following is a commercial announcement. Hey, Donna, how's it going? Bad, Ken. Really bad. Why? What's the matter? Well, our friends at the Infernal Revenue Service paid me up personal visit the other day. The Infernal Revenue Service? Yep. Call them for what they are. They sent these two big brutes to the house. Scared us all half to death. (laughs) I bet. What do they want? Money. Lots of it. Remember that part-time gig I took on last summer? Oh yeah. You were raking in some big bucks. Yeah. 
And all those big bucks went straight into my personal bank account. Well, turns out the IRS doesn't like that. And I didn't file any of the right forms or pay nearly enough in taxes. So they want it all. Now. Right now. Plus penalties and interest. Ouch. Sounds like you should have called Amendment 16. Hey, it's the damn 16th Amendment that got me into this predicament in the first place. No, no, no. Amendment 16, the invoicing service. They'll invoice your client for the hours and expenses you report to them. And when your client pays them, they pay you. Minus all required state and federal taxes. It's that easy. One call does it all. And they'll even have an account and do your personal taxes for you come April Fool's Day. I mean, come April 15th. And they take care of all the taxes? All the forms? Yep. And they get passed along certain tax breaks, too. Man, I wish I knew about Amendment 16 sooner. Where can I find them? On the web, of course, at amendment16.com, with 16 spelled out. That's amendment, S-I-X-T-E-E-N.com. One call does it all. Have you heard the big news? The Pennsylvania Project is expanding dramatically. Each episode is now being broadcast multiple times a week on WWDB Talk Radio in Philadelphia. And the show has recently gone into syndication across Pennsylvania. Our success can be your success as well. A limited number of opportunities have recently come available where you can advertise affordably on the Pennsylvania Project. Not only will your message be heard throughout Pennsylvania's largest media market by far, all past episodes are always available for download at PennsylvaniaProject.com, at WWDB's website, on iTunes, and from many other popular podcast providers. So here's your chance to become a permanent part of the first liberty-oriented talk radio show on WWDB since the legendary Irv Homer hung up his headphones. Interested? Drop us a line at PennsylvaniaProject.com today. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to the me portion of episode 63 of the Pennsylvania Project where I get to rant a bit about something that really sticks in my craw. Today's topic is something I've been meaning to get around to for a very long time. I tried to squeeze it in back in episode 62. I was foolish to try, didn't have enough time. So bear with me, I'm going to start again. The topic is eminent domain, or as I like to call it, theft. Let me start with a little bit of background definitions about eminent domain. What is it besides theft? It's the power of a government to take private property for public use. Not that they limit themselves to public use these days. I'll talk about that in a bit. Eminent domain is authorized, unfortunately, in Article 1, Section 10 of the Pennsylvania Constitution, which says, quote, Nor shall private property be taken or applied to public use without authority of law and without just compensation being first made or secured, unquote. Boy, it's a shame it's in Article 1. According to Section 25 of Article 1, it is, quote-unquote, forever inviolate. With everything else in Article 1, like the right to bear arms not being questioned, free and equal election, initiative referendum, no unreasonable search and seizures, 
all these things that have remained inviolate. <laughs> not. I guess parts of Article One that they like, they keep. Part of like parts like eminent domain, but I digress. Eminent domain is traditionally used by government to claim property for roads, public utilities, government buildings, things like that. But recently, they've been using it for a whole variety of things, like giving stolen land to private developers who can legally do whatever they want with it, even sell it for non-public use. Stories about the abuse of eminent domain abound. In episode 62, I mentioned during my truncated rant, I mentioned how back in 2009, Abington Township used eminent domain to steal a little old lady's property. And we had a similar rally to the shutdown, the shutdown rally, where we went to the homes of each of the commissioners who voted to steal her property. And that day was a huge success. We had like 75 people showing up, house to house all day it took. None of them thieves had the courage to speak to us, unlike our state reps who did come out and talk to us last week. But the rally had its desired effect, Donna. This goes back to what you were asking earlier because they eventually gave up trying to take that little old lady's property. They still make her life difficult, but that's another story. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not the only example of Abington Township stealing private property. There's a place they call Hillside Cemetery. And they had this beautiful, huge tract of land 80 acres, and Abington wanted it as open space, even though cemeteries already open space, you know? But they voted to steal it. And to add insult to injury, they offered far less than it was worth, worth, and it got worse because the township wanted to raise taxes and float bonds to pay for it. They had this huge, huge to-do in the Keswick Theater in Abington to try and sell their plan. And one person after another got up saying, oh, how much they love open space, how much they love a tax increase, of course, I had to get up and say otherwise. I said the obvious. With all these people supporting open space, why don't you ask them to contribute money to pay for it? Just put a bucket at the end of the Keswick, at the end of the row there. <sighs> of course, the silence was deafening when I said that. And boy, the looks that I got. Oh, man. It was silent, but they spoke volumes. How dare I take away their tax toy? But, you know, I wasn't done with them yet because I told them how I contacted the William Penn Foundation in Philadelphia. They routinely buy open space for the public good, and they told me they would be happy to help. No tax increase necessary, no bonds, no theft. Well, Abington wasn't interested. They just went ahead with their eminent domain, went ahead with their theft, I should say. But me, I went ahead with the private funding. I pushed it forward anyway. William Penn Foundation stepped up, and they offered an initial $55,000 to get things rolling. Turned out it didn't matter because the cemetery owners, they didn't want to sell. I guess their business was dying or not dying. Or I don't know. I'm not sure how to come up with that one. Bottom line is it all ended up in court. It took seven years, took quarter million dollars of Abington's stolen tax dollars and legal fees. It gobbled up all the private funding that I located and more, and it dumped it right into the wallets of the lawyers doing the arguing. And of course, the foundation, they, they didn't stay in the deal. I mean, who would stay with it, right? You know, in the beginning, I was proud to have found that $55,000 of voluntary funding to lay the groundwork for buying the land privately. But today, I feel like a chump. And it's not just eminent domain abuse in Abington Township that libertarians like to talk about. There's that Kilo versus New London decision where eminent domain was used to steal land to give to a developer. But you don't have to go to Connecticut. We are the Pennsylvania Project. And there's too many examples here in Pennsylvania, not just in Abington. Closer to home, Coatesville, 
they tried to take Dick and Nancy Saha's farm. They wanted to build a golf course of all things. Hey, now that, that is something really important. Got to steal that land. Great public use of golf course, don't you think? Ain't that eminent domain wonderful? But Saha's, they wouldn't have any of it. They fought back. Eminent domain for private gain, they called it. They offered to negotiate. They offered for free six acres of land. They, Coatesville, they refused it. They wanted it all. God bless Dick and Nancy. They would not stand for it. It took five years of court battles and $300,000 of the Saha's retirement money, but they finally won. And now to keep those farms, they also gave the town those original six acres free. Isn't that cool? They persecuted the Saha, stole all that money. People ask why I'm involved in politics. How could I not be? You know, early in the show, I talked about Bernie, his question, the mantra of the grassroots activist. I said it a million and one times, now it's a million and two. It's easy to remember. Two words, 10 words, two letters each. If it is to be, it is up to us. Well, Dick Saha, he made it personal. And you know, there's no question I had to talk about his rant because I knew Dick Saha and he passed away just a few days ago. Another Pennsylvania hero lost. There's no holiday name for Dick Saha, no postage stamp, no monument. But those politicians who tried to steal his farm would be afraid to meet his ghost and acknowledge their sins against the ideal that Dick Saha fought so bravely to defend. That is a legacy to be proud of. Thanks and farewell, Dick Saha. It was to be. It was up to you. And you succeeded. You, sir, are a role model for us all. That's going to wrap it up for episode 63 of the Pennsylvania Project. Today's episode, courtesy of Amendment 16 Limited. Broadcast live from the studios of WWDB Radio in Philadelphia. And our webmaster, Stephen Worley, marketing guru, Connor Jagotis, featured Toastmaster, narrator, and cohort, Donna Herb, official bartender, Brooke Smith, official keyboard wizard, Joe the Pag, radio producer, Brett Kronberger, executive producer, Mark Bazzacco, and me, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. Thanks for joining us. And remember, more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. <laughs>